she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, every time we open your word, we need your guidance to understand it, to be transformed by it, that it might produce life in us, that it might draw us nearer to you, that it might cause us to live in greater measures of obedience and faithfulness. So even here as we consider the birth of Jesus, our Emmanuel, Lord, speak to us. And we thank you for this magnificent word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Today I want to do two things. I want to explore the cultural context that surrounds Mary and Joseph when these events took place. And then secondly, I want to explore the theological significance of Christ's birth, a theological uh, significances that have much to do with our lives today. But as we explore these things, a little disclaimer, I think we're generally okay. I'm going to be talking about some adult things today for the text takes us there. So if you have young ears, again, or you are warned. (laughs) As we had seen last week, we looked at that genealogy, God had bent all time, and he has guided the, the rising and the falling of kingdoms. He has woven the exceedingly precise circumstances into which the Christ would be born, for the Christ to be born. This Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The genealogy that opens Matthew, it sets the stage for those exceedingly precise circumstances. And they are exceedingly precise. So many of those circumstances were prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Some of them thousands of years And so we come to this passage today in chapter 1, verse 18, and it begins a sequence of five stories or pericopes. And each one of these stories, the first one is in today's passage, and there are four more of these stories in chapter 2. But each one of those is pointing to a specific prophecy that has been fulfilled in Christ, and each one has an angelic dream. Each one of these five stories or pericopes. Now, these are being assembled 
not merely so that we would know the circumstances of Jesus' birth and the things that were going on at the time and the wise men showing up and all of that. There's a different purpose, a greater purpose, actually, in how Matthew assembles these five stories. It shows us that Jesus, this man from Nazareth, in this obscure, strange town that really had no significance, how this Jesus could be the Messiah. How how the Old Testament, how the prophets were pointing to this one man. And so these five pericopes actually function as an apologetic to prove Christ as the Messiah. And what, Jesus, or what Matthew is doing is he's countering the Jewish expectation of the day that the Messiah would come from Judah, from Bethlehem, in fact, and he would emerge in a glorious manner. It would be obvious that this is the Messiah. This is the one to overthrow the Roman Empire. But Jesus came from Nazareth. And Nazareth was backwards and it was obscure and it was an undesirable place. In fact, Nazareth didn't even exist in the Old Testament. Be very much like if, if Jesus were born today, he'd be coming out of Appalachia and he'd have this thick hillbilly accent. And if we heard him, we'd be like, Who's this guy? He's going to tell us he's the Messiah? It's exactly why Nathaniel, one of Jesus' eventual disciples, when he heard that Jesus was the Messiah from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Matthew's using these five pericopes as proof to the reader, particularly to the Jewish reader, that something good did indeed come out of Nazareth. The greatest good that has ever graced the face of planet Earth came out of Nazareth. But first, with this first story in our passage today, Matthew is revealing to us, to the reader, how David's royal line, the royal lineage, applies to this guy from Nazareth. Look at verse 18 again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. When a man and woman are engaged today, it lets everybody know that they intend to get married. It's sort of a a public proclamation of their love for one another and their plans and the life that they hope to have together so it's like this formal agreement of marriage. It comes with its commitments, but it's certainly not a commitment like marriage, and it's not unheard of for engagements to be broken off. It, it would hurt if an engagement's broken off, but oftentimes people will say it's for the best. Probably it is. Maybe it is. Betrothal's a different thing. It's not like that at all, Really? So usually the, the, a betrothal is arranged by the parents and the man would pay the woman's parents a bride price, a significant value, which was meant to solidify and symbolize the commitment that the man was making to the woman and to the woman's family, for that matter. It's important because in a culture where women were regarded as second-class citizens, the bride price would symbolize and secure the woman's value like this Great price that I've paid to the family. This value is how I value this woman, you know, and it's just a symbol of that. 
So betrothal was a, a commitment far more profound than engagement today. In fact, look at, look at verse 19. Even though they're still betrothed, Joseph is called Mary's husband. And if they're to break off their betrothal, it's called divorce. Right? So betrothal is a strong commitment. It's a very public commitment. Everybody would have known about this commitment, this betrothal that they're making to one another. Everyone in the town, everyone in Nazareth would know about this betrothal. Now, typically, once that betrothal was formalized and that bride price was paid, then the husband would go away. He would go away for about a year. And during that time, he would usually prepare the place where they would live together, he and his wife. Sometimes he'd even build a house to receive his wife into. In that span of time, the woman, the wife, would live with her parents for that year. It was a time of preparation. It was a time of anticipation and excitement. And then after that year, the husband would come for his bride. He'd show up and he would take her from her mother's house, her father's house. A wedding ceremony would take place and then they would go together to that place that they would live, to their new home. And only at that point would the marriage be consummated. Now, the events of our passage happen within that span of time of betrothal, that year of time of preparation, of anticipation, of excitement. So when Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant, you imagine how shattering that must have been? How crushing Not only does it destroy their relationship that he was so hopeful for, it's a huge economic setback. And then there's the terrible public shame that was inevitable. It would call into question Joseph's manhood. Was he not good enough to please this woman that she would go wandering around looking for somebody else? And of course, of course, Mary would be labeled a whore. Now, unless she had been raped, according to Mosaic law, an unfaithful, betrothed woman should be treated as an adulteress. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. By what Joseph sees, according to Mosaic law, Mary deserves to die, to be stoned to death. But the Roman Empire had ruled out, had abolished the death penalty from, by the hand of the Jews. They were not allowed to enact the death penalty, which is why eventually the Jews are going to need the Romans to crucify Jesus. So Mary cannot be executed, not that Joseph was wanting that, but it does mean that there was only one recourse. The only thing he could do was divorce her. Look at verse 19 now. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
So I think we need to understand what divorce is in those days to know what's really going on right there. And it's going to come up again later in the book of Matthew. A husband would need to gather a few of the local leaders. Perhaps they were elders of the village or maybe they were uh, leaders within the local synagogue there in Nazareth. And he would gather them together and then in their presence he would declare, she is not my wife nor am I her husband. Divorced. Those were words stolen from Habakkuk 2 verse 2. So if a woman had committed adultery, then all the more public you would want that ceremony to be. You'd want as many people there to witness that divorce ceremony as possible to vindicate yourself as the man and to shame the woman. Look what she has done. That was the custom. And then afterwards, a legal certificate of that public declaration or a certificate of divorce would be issued to the man. He would give it to the woman And then she would be obligated to leave the house with nothing. She would leave destitute and labeled a social pariah. Now, none of that is derived from biblical law. Rather, it's all all of this divorce ceremony and procedure emerges from the teachings of the religious leaders and the traditions. But Joseph didn't want to divorce Mary according to those traditions, according to those teachings. Verse 19 says that he was a just man. So in other words, Joseph was a man who was careful to obey the commands of God. And not in a legalistic way, but he earnestly wanted to obey God. He earnestly wanted to do what pleased God. He was just. And as a just man, desiring to follow God's command... He did have to divorce Mary. The implication of Deuteronomy 22 is is that she's no longer eligible for marriage or betrothal. So by the law, he was obligated to divorce her. But because he was a just man. And just as God desires mercy over judgment, Joseph desired mercy over judgment. He had every, it would seem by every earthly account that he had the right to shame Mary, to publicly humiliate her, and then just rid himself of her. But despite that, he wanted to spare her any further embarrassment. She was embarrassed enough. She was embarrassed enough. And the more that her belly grew, the more her embarrassment would grow. And so he decides to do this thing quietly. All he needed were two officials. He could do it in a private place. He could have a secret ceremony away from the public eye, and he could recite those words in the hearing of just those two men. Now, he knows word would get out, but he could mitigate the scandal as much as possible. He could do it quietly. Certainly he felt betrayed. But even in that, he wants to give her dignity. Because he desires mercy over judgment. Notice how verse 20 begins. As he considered these things, it says, the phrase implies that Joseph made up his mind. He would quietly divorce her. But it also implies that Joseph arrived at that conclusion after thoughtful consideration. 
He didn't react in anger. He didn't immediately rush to the authorities and say, I want this divorce and have a whole loud ceremony that would blast it to the village. And he could have. But upset as he must have been, he did not lash out at Mary. Instead, he took time to consider. And being that he had dream, he, he obviously didn't act until he slept on it. And I think this is a great demonstration of wisdom on Joseph's part. Slow to speak, slow to anger. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he writes, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What righteousness might abound if we took time to slow down, to consider, to listen, rather than to react. And I'll tell you, there are times where it just flares up inside of me and I react, fool that I am. But wasn't the righteousness of God produced when Joseph was slow to speak? When he was slow to anger? Yeah, the righteousness of God, in fact, was born. Yeah, Joseph was a just man. Look at verse 20 now. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's a mind-blowing statement. So God sends this angel to deliver a message to the sleeping Joseph, and that angel addresses Joseph as son of David. It reminds us, the reader, what's at stake. That royal line, the Davidic lineage. Because without Joseph, this unborn child would not belong to the royal line. Joseph is the key that Jesus would be born to the royal line. And the angel says, do not fear. That's, a less, that, that's less of a command for Joseph not to tremble at the sight of the angel. Like, ah, that's not a command like that. It's a command to take courage. Gird up your loins, Joseph, because what's, what you're about to do is going to be incredibly difficult. Do not fear. This is no easy message to receive. Do not shrink back. And then the angel says that Mary has not been unfaithful. God, the Spirit, has created that child in her. In the book of Genesis... In the darkness and in the deep, there was the Holy Spirit hovering. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters before creation, and that hovering was not aimless. It was filled with creative purpose. It was preparing for something that was about to emerge. The Spirit brooded over the waters, overshadowing them, about to begin a new creation, a creation. And both Matthew and Luke, they are echoing those creative origins in the birth of Jesus. Listen to how, how Luke does it. 
when the angelic messenger speaks to Mary. Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in the womb of the world, the overshadowing Holy Spirit wrought creation. And now in the womb of a virgin, the overshadowing Holy Spirit conceived a baby boy who would make all things new and initiate a new creation. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph has now been given two instructions, two things that he needs to do, two uh, commandments that he must obey. One, take Mary as your wife. Two, name this child Jesus. Jesus, that name. That's a, a derivative of the Old Testament name Joshua, and it literally means Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. The name will accord with his purpose. Like the angel says, he will save his people from their sins. He's named what he will do. And there's so much in that simple little statement, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is not going to save his people from Rome. He's not going to save his people from their sufferings and their pains and their tumults in this life. He didn't come to erase all of your suffering and all of your pain, at least not yet. Rather, he will save you from your sins. From your sins and from the consequence of your sins. This was always the testimony of the prophets. The prophets always pointed to this. Isaiah spoke spoke of a messianic figure that God called my servant. He wrote, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the servant, the iniquity of us all. And Jesus then claims this servant's purpose for himself in Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice in that verse how Jesus does not say, that he gave his life as a ransom for all, but for many. So who are the many? Who are the many that he gave his, his life as a ransom for? Who has he come to save? Well, look back at, at, uh, chapter, or at verse 21, what the angel says to Joseph. He will save his people from their sins. Not all people, only his people. Only Christ's people will be saved from their sins. So, who are those people? How do you know if you're one of his people, one of the many? Jesus tells us, John chapter 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, 
and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So who has Jesus come to save? Those who hear his voice and follow him. Those who follow him. These are his people. These are the ones that he knows, and he knows them by name. They are elect ones that the Father has given to the Son as a gift, and they are eternally secured in the hand of Christ, in the hand of the Father. And no one in all creation is powerful enough to snatch them away. These are the ones that Christ has come to save. And so God sent forth his Son at the fullness of time to be born of a virgin, to redeem the elect from their sins. Again, if you have come to Jesus in faith, if you believe that he is the king, that he is the son of God, And if his voice sounds to you like the voice of a savior, like the voice of a friend, then you are his, and he is yours. And nothing in all creation can separate you from his love. But to a devout Jew, a problem is beginning to emerge. Because most Jews thought that the Messiah, he would be a great man, he would be a mighty militaristic king like David, and and he probably would be imbued with these miraculous powers. Yes, but the embodied Yahweh? God? No. That's absurdity. And saving people from their sins is something only God can do. You see, for them, Matthew's beginning to blur the lines. Only God can save sins. This is what God says in Isaiah 43.25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. And people of God always understood this, that it is only God who can save us from our sins. And so the psalmist cries out in Psalm 79, Help us, O God, for our salvation, of our salvation, For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. But Matthew's just blurred that line. Was the Messiah a man? Or was the Messiah God? And the answer is, Yes, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew's quoting Isaiah 7:14 almost verbatim. What happened to Mary is the very thing that had been prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before, defying all reason and by the power of God, a virgin has conceived a son. What a stumbling block this is for the unbelieving world. And they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, the prophecy says. This unborn child, the miraculous son, is Emmanuel, God with us. There isn't any record of anybody calling Jesus Emmanuel. But ever since those days, the church has always called Jesus Emmanuel. And some churches have even chose to name themselves after Emmanuel. Emmanuel. The Apostle John talks about the same kind of reality of God being with us. When he opens his gospel, John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So was the Messiah man or was he God? He was. He is. He is forevermore. Man and God. Jesus, Emmanuel, fully man, fully God. Since the moment that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, God the Son is in every moment completely human. He is created, having a body filled with the human emotions. He's limited. He's lowly. He's dependent upon the Father. But at the exact same time and in every moment, Jesus of Nazareth is completely God. He is uncreated. He is a spirit. He is brimming with blazing holiness. He is high and lifted up. He is self-existent and limitless and eternal, fully God and fully man. And this is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. It is as much a mind-bender as the doctrine of the Trinity. Things sometimes seem, appear to us to be self-contradictory, but in the realm of God, they hold together with perfect unity, and thank God that they do, because when these things hold together, reality holds together. We exist within these realities. So how awesome is the hypostatic union that God is fully man and fully God? It's our salvation. So let me tell you how this is our salvation and the, some of the most fundamental elements of reality. The hypostatic union, a fundamental element of our reality. Because there is no human being who has ever lived that has been righteous. We just saw that in Isaiah. Everyone is a lawbreaker and every person has used their life to become an offense to God, to choose to worship self over God. We choose our own way and we go off on our own path and we get so tangled up with self-love and pride that we don't even realize how deep the problem goes. And so the Bible tells us, it tells us that we are totally depraved, corrupted to the core, constantly unfaithful to God. It's like, it's like what God said to the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20, for long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. How many green trees? How many hills? All of them. And we are gripped by this wicked addiction. To repudiate God and to serve ourselves, and when lost, to our sins, we ravenously chase down other lovers and we become an abhorrence to God. Such spiritual adultery earns for us the condemnation of death. 
But God chooses mercy over judgment. He chooses mercy over judgment, and in view of our worst, he gives to us his very best. And God sent forth his son to be born into a human body. And so Jesus, born in the flesh, was not once overcome by the lusts of the flesh, not by our pride or our self-serving addictions. No, he lived perfectly and selflessly and humbly and righteously, and he was overflowing with compassion and love. And he came to us, and he found us there in our shame, bound to our addictions, lost in our nakedness, and he desired to clothe us in righteousness. And so before we could put on his clothing, he put on ours. Like Paul writes, he became sin who knew no sin. To eradicate our sin, to, re to remove our condemnation, he placed his body where our body belonged. Sentenced to death. Killed on a criminal's cross. He became our curse to remove our curse. And when he died, so also died our curse of sin. But the curse of death did not defeat him, but rather he rose in victory when he burst from that grave and sin and death were killed forevermore when Christ rose from the grave. So now all who come to Christ by faith, they become the righteousness of God. They become the righteousness of God. So come to Christ. Come be transformed into his image, into his glory. Put on his robes of righteousness. Come to Jesus and be saved. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new creation. God has come to us so that we could come to him. God has put on our clothing so that we could put on his. And he makes all things new. That's why he became flesh. He came to be with us in our mess to save us from our sins and to make us new. These are the two names of Jesus, of the Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel. Yahweh saves, Yahweh with us. They come together. It is reality. It is the good news. It is why we are saved. He has come to be with us in our most gritty, most lowly, most intimate ways conceivable. He has come in this way. He came and he found us so that we could come to him and be found in him. And Joseph's dream is no dream, right? It's, like I've said, reality. It's why we worship it's why we spend our lives for one another. It's why we're sitting in this room today. Because Jesus has saved us by coming to be with us. He is Emmanuel at the opening of Matthew's gospel. And he is Emmanuel at the close of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, 20, the very last words of Matthew. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's not Emmanuel then, but not now. No, he is always with us, and he is even here. Even as we gather at Emmanuel, 
Emmanuel is with us. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Emmanuel, Jesus our Emmanuel is with us now in this moment. I mean, do you really live like that? Does this reality blow your mind? Shouldn't we like be melting in worship on the floor if this is really true? Oh, but how humdrum we live our lives. The Spirit of Christ is in your midst. You do not worship Christ in some far-off place, sitting on some distant throne, unreachable and unapproachable. No, He is with us, beside us, around us, dwelling within our hearts. He sees you and He hears you and He knows your name and He he knows the number of hairs on your head. Nothing, nothing can separate you from His love. Not even death is going to separate you from Christ. He is so near and He has regarded you as so precious So though your body die, yet shall you live, and you shall be with him, and he shall be with you forevermore. So do not fear. Yahweh saves. Death has no victory over you. Emmanuel is with you. You will wake up. And Joseph woke up in a different kind of way. In verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Emmanuel. Just a really quick parenthesis. The Catholic concept of the perpetual virginity of Mary is absurd, that she was somehow always a virgin, because this implies that after Jesus was born, there was a consummation. And we know there are more kids that, got, that were born to Mary and Joseph. So it's not a, a full-on rebuke of the perpetual virginity of Mary, but it certainly helps us to see that some of those things are, are not biblical. All right. Joseph obeys the commands of the Lord. Right? The first one, he saw out the betrothal, he married Mary, and he took the shame, which must have been overwhelming, and everyone would have seen him as a cuckold. What a terrible, I would hate that, to be seen as a cuckold, called like synonyms, thesaurus, sissy, coward, pushover, mama's boy. So he's a cuckold. Mary would have been labeled a whore and this child a bastard. And he was called that. But even in this, this was the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah wrote about the Messiah, that he would be despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53.3. So it's true for Jesus in birth and in death, despised and rejected by men. It's true for his family. It's true for Joseph. Even though there was this angelic dream, imagine an amazing angelic dream and then waking up and then like, was that real? And I know that the Jews regarded dreams more highly than we do, but you would still wake up and wonder how real that was. Um, 
the incredible decisions that had to be made on that, the great costs that would come with following through with the things I saw in a dream. So it took Joseph great faith. And he paid a great price to obey that command. And Joseph obeyed the second command. He named the boy Jesus. This would have happened at eight days old when Jesus was circumcised. And he names him. He gives him his name. Do you know what that means when Jesus gives him his name? Or when Joseph gives him his name? Joseph officially adopted Jesus in that moment. That's when it happened. And in that moment, Jesus becomes the rightful heir to the Davidic line, to the throne of David. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophets. Dreams are hard to trust, but you have heard through the word of God. Joseph obeyed God at a great cost to himself. Is there a cost in your obedience? Is there obedience? Will you run out of these doors as soon as church is over and that's it for Christianity until next Sunday? What do you fear? Emmanuel is with you and Jesus saves. What do you fear? Jesus said this. So good, timely. For whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels would save it. Father, these are great realities, great truths. These are things far beyond our mind in so many ways, and yet you bring them so near. You plant them in our heart. You make us new. You've begun this work. Now, Lord, help us to be faithful to that work, to live in obedience, to live like these things are truly real and not not just stories, but our life. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose our souls? Help us to follow you in obedience. Emmanuel, you've come to save us. You've come to be with us. May we faithfully be with you with the time you have given us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.